So uh, that's good. Um, yeah. Hey, Will, the clap thing does nothing when you're back there. No. You've got the clap. You've got to be in front of the cameras in order for the clap thing right. to do anything. Do I need a penicillin? Yeah. Dreams, dreams, ointment. For those who are serious about rash relief. I want some clapping, damn it. You clapped for him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not in my... Hey, 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 ladies and gentlemen, I'm not in my studio. Okay, I demand clapping. There we go. That's better. Chase, I need clapping. I, I... Welcome everybody to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I'm really excited with my guest today because I can't pronounce his last name. I can't either, so it's... <laughs> there we it's, go. It's Mark. <laughs> Why don't you try? You have more practice at it than okay, I do. Okay, so uh, I, we've been saying it as Bohorich the entire time we've been in the United States. My family and I, after my grandfather Before passed... Before an itch? Yeah. Bohorich. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bohorich. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my my family, uh, we went to Croatia, where our ancestors came from, at least the ones with the last name Bohoric. And apparently it's Bahoric. Bahoric. Which emphasizes all the things that are really tough to say in, right. in English. So we're just going to go with Bohoric. Bohoric. Whether like we're that. right or we're wrong, we're just going to roll with whatever it is. I gotcha. So... Colin sends me this text or an okay. email or something. Hey, Chuck, why don't you talk to Mark? You know, why don't you go on each other's podcast? Do all that. You called yeah. and uh, we were talking and you kind of went through your background and all that. I actually put you on hold and went to the bathroom. So I don't, rem- I don't remember your, your background. So why don't you tell folks? So uh, I was in oil and gas for uh, 10 years as a reservoir engineer. Dude, you uh, fell for that. I did. Uh, I actually, so... When I entered the oil and gas industry in 2006, I was the only engineer um, at, at the companies I was working for as, as an intern and then as a full-time employee under the age of 40. So Yeah, that, that's always my joke is our business, yeah. what's the average age? Next yeah. year, add one. Next year, <laughs> add one. Yeah. So it's not, not that far from the truth, but what I got to a chance to witness is in 2006, everybody's like, well, this Barnett's great. What's next? And so uh, who are you working for at the time? Uh, uh, Matrix Petroleum. And okay. they, all right. Like, uh, so South Louisiana offshore drill, uh, onshore offshore driller uh, and in state waters uh, looking for gas because gas was like 14 bucks an oh, yeah. or something like that. Uh, and now it's like barely three two fifty. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, they, they, they brought me on. As an intern, I'm in college. I don't know what I'm doing. They say, hey, go read a bunch of papers. We got this shale thing. There, we've got these guys that are doing, you know, shale things. Um, what should we do? And it's a great project for an intern because, you know, it allows them, if they want to, to go look at, you know, what the body of work. And you can spend all day reading something. But then at the end of the day, like, whatever they say you need to do like you don't have to listen to them you're just like you know hey go go on the self-exploratory project kind of like burning man i don't know but that's uh that was my first project 
Um, Plus, there's this whole element of it's new yeah, as it's well. New. Mm-hmm. I've always had a theory that Captain Kirk was actually an intern. You know, <laughs> somebody, gave, somebody gave him, you know, hey, man, take this cruiser and go see what's going on. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I engaged. I was too too young and immature to know what was really going on as an, as an intern. I was like, oh, man, they're giving me this great project. I'm going to tell them everything right. I've learned and, you know. And we get to the we get to the presentation, and my conclusion, I kid you not, was, look, guys, uh, the fundamental problem with oil and gas is it's great your 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 chance of drilling a dry hole is really low, yeah, but it requires so much capital. This is a big boy's game. Like you can't just like show up with your pants on and just like okay, we're gonna we're gonna right. drill a bunch of wells and and, and do do that. Um, so it was a really one sided presentation, like only part of the story. Uh, and obviously at the ripe age of 20 something, like I, I didn't know head from tail from anything. Um, but it really allowed me to, uh, start to understand like, how does this actually work? When you say you're going to apply new technology to a field and extract oil and gas, uh, what does it actually look like? And wh- once you've made that decision, how does that impact the next decision? And, how do you value those assets? And eventually went into uh, several different independent companies and eventually started a software company uh, around valuing those shale assets um, because you went from 30 wells per engineer to like 30 wells per month per engineer. Uh, and you end up having to evaluate thousands of wells for what they're going to do in the future so that you could understand what a new well in that field would do. Uh, we turned that into a software as a service company and sold it to uh, Dr- Drilling Info slash Inveris. What was the name of the company? Uh, Q Engineering. Ah, got it. So you guys were actually clients of ours uh, back in the day. Uh, I can say I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> they would. So portfolio companies would always laugh because you know I hung I hung out with engineers. So I, I'm not I'm sorry. stupid. I'm so sorry. But I'm not stupid, <laughs> right? I could pick some stuff up, but uh, I would always start the killer question with. As the dumb finance guy in the room and the CEO is always got, oh my God, he's going to ask, yeah, he's going <laughs> to ask some engineering question that's going to bust us. But, uh, uh yeah. how do you pick the dry holes again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, how, how's that going to happen? But you know what I want to get your take on since you were living that life way more on the front line than I was. I was two steps removed looking at it on Excel, right? Yeah, while fair. I was looking at you going, man, that would be great if I could be Chuck Yates. <laughs> exactly. You should aspire to so much more. But, um, I have a theory that at the end of the day, the thoughtful, reasonable people didn't chase acreage because there really wasn't data, science. It was almost Ouija board, divining rod, almost a religion if we hit this with more sand bigger eurs will come yeah and i almost think the industry got taken over by the optimist that relied way more on art as opposed to science and that's what led to the bubble so uh any truth to that i i think there is a lot of truth to it as a reservoir engineer that learned reservoir engineering in the age of shale I didn't have that's the, an oxymoron, but it, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Like I didn't have the burden of permeability. Like that wasn't. <laughs> I didn't have to think too hard about that, that physics. The, stuff. The physics yeah. stuff. Uh, 
ultimately like you on the one hand have um drawing lines through dots that's right that's that's an important skill that you need to learn how to do as a engineer but you also have a lot of people that really thought through the physics of it and i wasn't that smart i was smart enough to know who those guys were and to 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 bounce ideas in a pub-like setting um off of them so that i could um like i don't know just satisfy my own curiosity I think there really has been, and I think there is right now, real physics-based work going on in companies across the the, the uh, nation, to especially because of the spacing problems that are are so. Well, evident. and now you have data. You have real I mean, data that was, that's that going was on. the key back then. Is you didn't have yeah. data, um, and so like, but there, like as with most stories, you have the the things that you disagree with that turn out to be you were wrong the things that you disagree with that you turn out to be right. And I think, as with any story, the shale revolution in, in the United States un, like unequivocally ushered in way more oil in the lower 48 than we thought in you know the late, uh, late 90s, early 2000s was, was possible. Oh, yeah. We um, were, I mean, late 90s, we were talking twilight about and desert. oil. Oh, yeah, yeah. big time. Uh, and uh, so there's an un, undisputable fact. The other undisputable fact is that I think the full cycle economics of, of a development program were largely ignored by a lot of people. Um, and the That's copy, paste, print, cop, you know, uh, development schedules just didn't work. Yeah, you know, that that's always my what I call kind of Chinese water torture or whatever. Sure. It's the well, we paid for the acreage that's sunk costs. We might as well drill the wells. Yeah. Oh, Which we is drilled them. You know, sort we, of. <laughs> we drilled them. We're not going to get the returns we thought, but we'll at least get the returns off completing them. Yeah. And all of a sudden you look up and you got half your money back on a well. Yeah. But yeah. each step was logical. Each the step capital, was logical. Mm-hmm. I believe I'm going to get a return on. Yeah. I mean, nobody was out there going, man, I hope to get half my money back. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you had access to all of those conversations from you know, from, from the whole, the whole soup to nuts. So I can't, you know, I can only see as a, as a, as a reservoir, as a young buck reservoir engineer that said by default that everybody's doing it wrong. Like, and then, you know, did my own thought process. I turned out to be somewhat right and somewhat wrong, but I think everybody from every perspective can point to shale and say, I was somewhat right, but somewhat wrong. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think is unique, I haven't given it enough thought to really look at other industries but if you think about it most industries your cost of goods go down over time right you know if you make tennis shoes leather gets cheaper when you buy in bulk you know manufacturing efficiencies all that if you think about it your cost of goods and oil and gas you are always the person that valued that acre that mm-hmm. well that field more than anyone else on the planet yeah otherwise so you wouldn't have won that uh, you that wouldn't auction, have won you know, it whatever. even if it's leasing an acre yeah you paid more than everybody else <laughs> matador yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> i don't know can i can i mention specific companies is, is it okay oh, i dude, mean they paid ninety four thousand per acre dude, so. we we on, on chuck yates needs a job we claimed eog has discovered the buddha which is going to be the largest oil and gas field did you know eog had three times their normal trading volume the day after that podcast <laughs> came out. <laughs> Making waves. Hey, man. So, EOG yeah, to you, the moon. You can mention companies. You can yeah. mention people's names. Okay. Whatever. Knock yeah. yourself out. All right. Great. 
So, yeah, no. So it's, I mean, you're always, your cost of goods. So really the only way you could save money is drilling cheaper. And quite frankly, there's just not a lot you can do there. I yeah. mean, yeah, you can go from 12 million down to 8 million. And yes, that does matter and, and all that. But yeah, no, you're always paying. And, and as you prove up acreage, it gets more expensive. Yeah. You know, you move over. So, yeah, it's it's a shitty business from that point of view. Well, you know, I think uh, was it Warren Buffett? It's like I, w- I don't want to be in an undifferentiated commodity business. Right. <laughs> yeah. You really have to buckle down and com- compete on things. There's no real way to differentiate yourself. And well, and the the other thing he said that was great too is, man, I hate a business where I spend everything up front and then I see what I got. Yeah. You know, and so you drill this well, you frack it, you turn it on, and boom, you know, oops, that's not as much <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So you build this software company up. Give me, give me two or three entrepreneurial stories from uh sure from building that up so um i think uh th- you have a lot of conversation in entrepreneurship about like the valley of death so you you everybody feels very excited to start a company and then as you start going things are going well you get to tell people that you're starting a company um and they're excited for you um and then they'll make the occasional reference to you know somebody famous has done you know made billions of dollars. You're like that's, right. that's great. Yeah, that's gonna be me or whatever. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and then you actually like start getting in, and the the work of entrepreneurship is actually really difficult because you are by definition pretty much by yourself. I had a co-founder. We both felt alone, um, and you're 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 going through like a lot of soul searching. You know, do I have this correct? Am I looking at this? I think it's clear as day, but it's hard for me to convince everybody else that we're doing something cool here. Um, and you know, we we took 150 meetings uh, before we sold our first license of software. So it, Did you really? it yes, it was a grind. And uh, you know, you're 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 in there for a while, and it's no, 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 yes. And the second you hit yes, hold on. Like it's so how long did it take you to make a sale if there were 150? Yeah, so meetings? we uh, we quit our jobs. Uh, they asked us to stay on because we were the two out of two engineers at the oil company that we were working at at the time um, and uh, helped them transition. So we did that. Uh, and then we uh, uh, so that's November of 16 all through 17 we're working on the product and taking all those meetings um in december 30th uh we uh, well okay so back up in june of 2018 we got it we got a uh we got a yes okay you guys are doing something kind of cool we should give you a little bit of money um and our first client marathon they they funded us it was like 3200 bucks and it felt like the greatest thing all ever. the money in the world all the money in the world because you know we it was the first real like yes with some dollars behind it but obviously thirty two hundred dollars isn't going to really do anything for you from june through uh the end of the year it was like we were working through continuing to to grow that um december 2018 we kind of sold our first had our first like the software had finally gotten enough features in it because it was just my co-founder and i are you writing code uh, embarrassingly, like, well, for most of this, yes. But uh, my co-founder was like, look, you're not good at this. And I was like, you know, I I knew that. He's like, you should stop. 
and uh, I was like, you know, I, I, I agree. So, um, we, like, I, I was, I was mostly booking meetings and attending meetings and, and he was writing the code, uh, and uh, we got to December, sold our first license of software. We actually delivered it in April. Uh, and between December when we collected dollars and April, we hired a programmer who took everything we had pulled together collectively on the user interface side, rewrote everything in like three months and said, hey, this actually works. You can sell this now. <laughs> we hired a team and, and went, went after it. Oh wow! So give me give me a funny or an embarrassing sales meeting. Oh, uh, easy. All We're right. with um, a uh, famous private equity company that starts with a Q. Shall remain nameless. Fair enough. Um, and uh, we're, we we're, will <laughs> allow it to remain anonymous. <laughs> you know, I don't want to bring anything lower than it needs to be. But you yeah. know, if you want to will you know any low, then you should do that. Um, exactly. Uh, and uh, so we're in this meeting. We've been working on this uh, product. You know, this is like summertime, and we're like, okay, guys, we think we have this working. And they're like, okay, we'll bring it by. We'll we'll set it up. We'll get you user accounts, whatever. So we show up, demo one. We've got like they've got a brand new conference room. Sorry, this is before the new building. So, like, uh, uh, you know, we're we're in this conference room. We're we're feeling very nervous. We we show up, and we click the first button, and it like blows up. Like it crashed. Really? Nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> and James and I look at each other, and we look at our clients. We look at each other. We look at our clients, and we're like. We'll be right back. (laughs) You know, control alt delete, (laughs) and uh, you know, we eventually got it back in back in order. But like that—that is one like first meeting of 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 something we really thought through. But ultimately, what ended up happening is these guys had our problems so badly they were willing to use software that broke all the time through that summer of discontent um, and help us validate that it actually could be great. Um, And without their using it and telling us that it was working and, and give us like, we probably would have folded up shop. Like it was like, even though that meeting started terribly, like it was right. They and uh, in in the, in our first customer were the ones that were using it. You know, they've actually done uh, studies on this and the most loyal customers that a company has are generally a customer that you screwed up with and you apologize to. Yeah. And you made it right. Those are your most loyal customers <laughs> as a because everybody's so concentrating on getting everything absolutely right mm-hmm. and and the like. But literally, if you screw up, just say you're sorry. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's there's an element to that. Like, I think in software, there's this adage, like, if you're not embarrassed to ship your first product, you waited too late. Like, there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, there is a lot to really connecting because fundamentally software gets a bad rap for being fluffy, but you really are solving a problem. You really are dealing with somebody who's having to do things they know in the age of the iPhone are like not they shouldn't have to copy and paste into Excel anymore. And they're doing that because it's the only way to get the job done that they can see. And when you come along with prototype software, you're saving them from having to do that mind-numbing work and really giving them an opportunity to really do the higher value thing, which is think about what does this really mean? Well, once I do this analysis, 
how, how can I do my job differently? I don't have to copy and paste and check formulas all the time anymore. I can really step into what's next. Yeah. So you're building this company. Sure. You finally make sale. Um, what's a high point? What's a low point kind of from that to the, to, uh, January of 2020. So, um, man, like from your first sale, like the world of software is all about growth, right? right? So once you start that clock and actually cash that check, which by the way, there's a difference between, oh yeah, we're going to buy your software and then we're going to actually pay you for it depending on who you, you sell yeah. to. So pesky detail. It, it I get takes, that. it takes some time, but like right. once the, once the check cashed, um, you're, you're, you're like, okay, well I've got all this money, all 3,200 bucks or whatever it is. And I need to go hire somebody to help me sell more of this because I didn't know what I was doing. I was an engineer, you know, uh, at, at, at an oil company beforehand, but I knew somebody that understood what it was like to sell something. And so I called him up and I was like, Hey dude, you should come work for me. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm not really sure. I haven't figured that part out yet, but we have the software. We'd like to sell it to as many people as possible. It's kind of similar to what you've done in the past. Come take a look. And so he takes a look, we hire him and he's <laughs> no like, two words have gotten me in more trouble, but I'm in. <laughs> so, uh, but really like we learned the software business from our sales team and the guys that really had been there before they in, in joining our company because we, we got, you know, four guys that work for a competitive software company uh, for sold together for 15 years. They really knew a lot about what it took to take like code that was a tool and turn it into software and then sell it and not only sell it, but support it. So they really, they really kind of wrapped their arms around us and really kind of carried us through. Uh, and, um, you know, we made, you know, the whole first year of scale from, you know, 2018 through the end of uh, like middle of 2018 through middle of 2019 we make a single update to that original code base really so those guys were rock stars oh that's very cool so i have a theory that where we are today is there's just tons of cool shit out there right sure. i mean there's all this great technology and you know disclaimer i'm on the advisory board for the montrose lane guys sure um, so little self-serving to say this, um, well, they're, they're fantastic. So yeah, no, really, really good dudes. Um, and, uh, so my funny story there is, uh, those guys stalked me on LinkedIn. Um, and like we talked about on your podcast, I answer all my LinkedIn messages. Yep. So they were like, Hey, let's go hang out and, you know, grab a glass of wine. So sure. we, we meet for that. I brought a pitch book that I'd written at Stevens 22 years ago. Right. And it was about energy technology and basically could have been their fundraising book. And yeah. I was going, hey guys, things haven't changed in like 22 years. <laughs> None of these problems are solved. But so anyway, they asked me to, they badgered me to join the advisory board and I'm sitting there going, you know, guys, have you not read my Twitter feed? I mean, yeah. come on, but anyway. Um, so. No, but I have a theory today, and I'm not up to speed on their portfolio. Right. I need to get more up to speed. But I just see all this really cool technology that has applications. Yep. And then you sit there and you go, why isn't it being used? And my theory is there's kind of this twofold problem in that oil and gas companies, one, they're just old. We mm -hmm. talked about old. But number two, they fired everyone, right? And so there aren't the people there 
to actually implement this technology. And then there's the finance problem. So I actually think there's just this huge opportunity, and I'm going to call it this, even though I'm not supporting or making a recommendation about how good they are, but like the Anderson Consulting of energy technology needs to pop up to where you can say, here's great software. Here's artificial intelligence on pumps, whatever the case may be. And actually walk into a company and say, hey, give me 100 wells. We'll run the test. Here's your payback, blah, blah, blah. We'll train your people and all that. Did you you guys face that? So, um, like... I think, or is there any truth to that, or whatever? There is Take definitely, there, there's definitely truth to it. So I need a drink. So, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna do that. You just talk for a while. Sounds good. Um, like, ultimately, what we thought we would do when we would sell our software was like, okay, hey, look, you can do in 15 minutes with our software what it would take you several hours uh, to to do with Excel, and so. Like the, the, if you do the math, like, well, you're making so many type curves. That's what we, you know, help people make, uh, per hour. That's going to mean that you need to, instead of spending, you know, 60 hours on a, on a project, you can now spend three hours. And that means that you can have one person doing the job of like 10 things, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, having the staff here. And so you're going to naturally take those, uh, those efficiencies and you're going to, you know, rationalize your business, however you want to rationalize your business. But it turns out that not only do people not resonate with that kind of a sales pitch, but they, it really actually isn't helpful. It's not really what happens. What software does as a tool is it enables the best minds to expand more rapidly. And it enables the, the, the winners to emerge naturally. So, if your company adopts new software and you free your workforce up uh, to where they're doing less mundane tasks, you're also in, in implicitly freeing them up to think critically about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then they actually get to make the next higher level value adding decision for your bottom line, whatever that may be. And people want to come work there. And people want to come work there because thinking about things that make a difference actually is fun. You know, figuring out how to more efficiently copy and paste something from wherever to Excel and back is not going to make anybody happy. Like really and truly, it's not. Yeah. So when I was with Stevens, we invested in a company called Silicon Energy. And what Silicon Energy did was it was an energy management software company for people that use energy. So let's just pick an example, Walmart. And so this software sat on top and interfaced with your control systems for your stores, your accounting system, you could import weather forecasting data and all this. And it was the coolest tool to sit there to use um, and save money on energy as well as a whole lot of other things. Like I'm making this up, but I think this was right. Neiman Marcus actually figured out who was stealing their inventory because they went and looked at the energy usage and Saturday night at midnight, (laughs) the day after inventory came on, there was always a blip of energy usage. And they're like, what the hell? So they did a stakeout. Turns out the guy was coming in with his key, turning on the lights, taking the inventory and, uh, and they caught him. The Wow. The, the Navy used this um, software for, what is it, Camp Pendleton? That's sure. down San Diego. And 
what was really interesting about that is they were talking about the energy usage and did it need to be behind a firewall and the navy's like yeah it doesn't need to be behind a firewall and uh, one of the guys goes well you do recognize when a nuclear sub is parked here your energy use spikes by three times and do you really want the russians to know that oh, valid question let's put it behind the firewall <laughs> so anyway it was this amazing uh software that really did great things there just wasn't a person in an organization that could actually use it. Yeah. I mean, the CFO is kind of going, well, that's not my job. Right. The CIO is sitting there going, well, you know, I got to make sure Excel's running over here. And I really thought you were going to wind up with a wave of companies that had chief energy officers sure. that would utilize that stuff. Never happened. Yeah. Just well, no adoption, even though it's the coolest thing on the planet. So I, I think this is the trap of software, right? And so I, uh, I think the statistic is like 5% of software companies make it uh, to a million a year in annual recurring revenue, which is really kind of like the minimum viable, you know, threshold. Um, and part of the reason is, is that you can objectively have a really good idea, but if nobody wants to buy your product then or implement your product or really derive value from the product, then they you, you you might not get them as an early client but even once getting them they might not renew and you know it really is tough to separate what really matters because i think as technologists you can be looking ahead into the future and saying well this is really useful and you can be right but people have a workflow and if the software doesn't match the workflow that they're following it's really difficult to both educate and sell at the same time yeah yeah, that, may, that makes a lot of sense. So so you start selling your software, and what leads up to the sell? Uh, oh, hold on. Yeah. Up to that point, did you raise external funds? We bootstrapped it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you're bootstrapping it. Which means that we're taking cash in from the left hand and then handing it out with our right hand. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. We need we need an advance payment on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, our customers really wanted us to win, right? They they wanted better software. We needed to hire more engineers, and so it was pretty easy to, to do. So so you and the management team and the employees and the company, what leads to the sale? Um, I think, uh, you know, when you're when you're creating value, it's naturally attractive. You know, people want components of of what you're what you're adding, and in our case. We had done some pretty uh, innovative things on the software side um, in how we allowed people to use the data they were already paying for and reinterpret that uh, analysis. Um, so, like, what, give me an example of that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and dummy it down for the finance guy. So, uh, you have a primary source of information, right? Like, um, to pay taxes, the state requires all operators to file how much oil and gas they make. Right, production okay. data. Production yeah. data. So, that's you know, gathering that data is really valuable at the base level because you're, you're able to see what's going on around you in a way you can't. But production data in and of itself isn't really that useful. Yeah. Um, you need to interpret where that production data is going and, and give a full picture of where that is. Uh, and, and so what we did is we helped interpret that production data um, and, and give people like some way to compare apples to apples. Um, well, even comparing production data isn't that useful if you can't see where that production data is relative to other production data points. And then uh, other baseline information, things like you know how much uh, sand was, was, was that well completed with, how long was the lateral, all of these things you need to roll in together. 
and then you need to take all of those variables and normalize them to, okay, well, if I know how long a well is, where it is, what zone it's in, uh, and how much sand it is, I need to be able to predict how valuable it is. Right. And so we just simplified that process, focused in on only that, and enabled our users to uh, have enough control uh, in that process. And in the scope of oil and gas, you know, we were the first way that you could do that um, without writing your own code. And we're yeah. the first commercial software that allowed people to do that. I mean, does do Netherlands Sewell still use that, that program they wrote? Uh, Presto? Yeah. Yeah. Presto is still actively in use. And it is, is uh, amazing. Um, you know, I, I, as an algorithm goes, I think any institution that's, that's got enough uh, retention that they don't have to train new employees that often, uh, you know, they can use software as, you know, with any user experience and be relatively successful. Um, but the hard part is when you're, when you're testing out new ideas and we need to keep up with the times, it's difficult to maintain and grow. Uh, and it's better to let a third party or a, really a collection of software companies try to solve a problem and the winner gets picked and usually ends up dominating the majority of the market. So yeah. we got to about 20% of the customers that we, that we could sell to based on the activity in the industry at the time in a year and a half. Oh, wow. So you're doing that. Y'all are humming along. Why do you sell? I mean, what's going um, through your head there? I think, uh, one, we were really excited about the partnership with uh, Drilling Info. Uh, they have... <laughs> it was the, a big check. Okay, I got it. That's <laughs> It's a big check. Well, partnership I mean, with Drilling Info. Well, uh, you know, they're, they're like, they get it. They really get it. And so when they, when they, when you build something, it's really your baby. And when somebody comes along and says, well, we'll give you some money and that's good. But here's what we're going to take the software. Here's what we want to do with it. Uh, and you, you really see that there's alignment in uh, like fundamentally valuing the idea that, that you brought out of nothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, knowing that they're going to take care of your employees and your customers is, is a huge chunk of it. Yeah. It was a big check. Cool. <laughs> I like it. So do this. So, you know, classic entrepreneur i'm sure there are way too many hours sure. all that you did that with five kids I, yes how do you how, how do you navigate that um uh, entrepreneurship is kind of a near-death experience for all marriages yeah uh, like there's uh anytime you're doing something where you are functionally marrying somebody else. Like, so in entrepreneurship, oh, right. you have a partner, you're marrying that partner. Right. And so you have two spouses that you have to then negotiate between. And I don't know how polygamists do it, but I, I imagine it feels a little bit like that where you can't do two things at once. You have to choose. And a lot of times your marriage is the, you know, suffers the brunt of that. Yeah. But we, we went through it with three years of counseling. That's, that's, that's how yeah. we did it. No, it's, uh, you know, it's really in interesting The my priest, Patrick, who kind of babysat me through my divorce and all, he talks about you're married four times in your life. Now, it could be to the same person, mm -hmm. but, you know, you're, you're definitely going to evolve. You're definitely going to change and uh, and all that. And so, you know, kudos to you to hold it together while well, being in another marriage. Well, that's definitely not something I can take full credit for. So, uh, yeah. If, yeah, my... My wife is literally amazing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, uh, going through hard times with your marriage, you really feel hopeless is a pretty common feeling. Yeah. Like you get in those those dark days. And um, 
like when I thought she was, she had it out for me, she was really like trying to search for a way to like bring it back. And once we realized that each of us wanted it to work, uh, it became a lot more possible. Yeah, you know, our pressure point as men is basically our ability to fix things. Yeah. And I tell men this, I tell women this, one of the things I learned from therapy was when she is quote unquote out to get you, she's trying to help. Yeah. And you're not accepting the help because your sense of self-worth is built on the fact that you solve everything. Right. Right. And, you know, I tell women that, too. I go, I know that when you say, hey, well, why don't you try this? You're trying to help. Yeah. Actually, what he hears, right, wrong or indifferent. I'm not defending this. I'm just trying to what he hears is you can't fix this. Yeah. And, you know, with women, generally, the pressure point is body image, you know, and with men, it's not being able to fix things. So. It's definitely yeah. not body image. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously don't have that problem. <laughs> By the way, I'm fat now. I oh. was so crushing COVID. I yeah. mean, in, cause, so, you know, quarantine happens. I've, you know, first thing I do is like, okay, I'm not going to drink. Because, yeah. I'm you know, I'm sitting out in Richmond and I'm by myself. Sure. And I'm just not going to drink by myself because that won't end well. Yeah, you know? it never does. Yeah. I mean, you know glass or two of wine would turn into a bottle would turn into well i got a meeting with roger hudson at two o'clock he's not going to care if i have a cocktail you know so yeah decided not to drink you know richmond the commute to downtown houston is not conducive to drinking either yeah exactly (laughs) but that was call it 45 minutes each way so that's an hour and a half a day i said you know what since i'm not making it since i'm at home quarantining I'm going to spend that time on the Peloton. Sure. Sorry, bomber. You know, I'm, I, I'm a Peloton guy. <laughs> so, so I was doing that. And then I could control the food coming in my house because it was sure. basically picking up, taking out every night. Mm-hmm. No business dinners, you know, no, you know, walking by, grabbing ice cream because sure. I'm out driving around and I see Pinkberry or whatever, yeah. you know. And so, yeah, in August, man, I was just crushing it. I looked great and all. And then September and October, I was working on something and, it was good stress. It wasn't bad stress, but yeah. I'm a stress eater. Sure. Boom. Yeah. So I started my regiment yesterday. Yeah. I think the average person, like what, picked up like 20 pounds per year or something yeah. like that. It was bad. Yeah. No. And unfortunately, I did that since August. Yeah. I picked up all of mine when like we were going through the deep like marriage stuff and, uh, and, and company stuff. Like, but so I, I stayed pretty much flat through through COVID because that part was behind me. There's nothing for worse. <laughs> Good for you, man. Yeah. No, we were sitting over there at lunch. I'll have the tuna salad. I was sitting there staring <laughs> at the pork chop, the smoked pork chop. I've it's heard, good there, too. Oh, yeah. I've heard that's the best. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, mm, can't do it. Yeah. But uh, all right. So one thing I've done on my podcast here yeah. recently and call it the last, I don't know, seven or eight episodes is I ask people for a playlist. Yes. And I don't we got know. it. Oh, you got one? Well, I've okay, got one. Good. It, it actually, uh, I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about this. Okay, because we talked about it on the yeah, phone. Yeah, we talked about it on the phone. And I... Um, I actually didn't put you on hold and go to the bathroom. <laughs> I, I was listening. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> While going to the bathroom. It's yeah, fine. exactly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, like, I my musical taste is pretty much all over the board. So uh, there's very few things I don't like. and But at the same time, like... And putting together a playlist, you're implicitly saying like, this is, these are the songs that I like are like part of like my personality and who I am. So right. it took me a lot of thought. Well, so, that's why we're doing it. Cause it yeah. actually says a lot about people. I mean, when, inter- yeah. I think the 
first one anyway energy credit one when he came on i mean he was talking about the song that got him through his parents divorce and stuff so it's much more personal yeah than what i was doing early on which was five questions which two or three would be serious and then two or three would be a joke and it was funny but at the end of the day it didn't really tell me much about the guests so lay this on lay this playlist on okay so like a huge part of who I am and like what, what way I think about the world, the way I interact with people and all that is, is uh, due to my faith. So I have a whole bunch of songs that are uh, on that side of, of me or part of me. Uh, and then like playlists of things that uh, part of the part of that is my uh, upbringing. I was homeschooled. I. Uh, yeah, you kind of got that geek vibe. I, I do you. definitely no, have I'm, a geek so vibe. I'm kidding. Um, so. None of yep, us were yes. homeschooled because we would have, my mom would have, <laughs> my mom would have shot all of us. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and so it kind of spreads the map, but uh, songs that, uh, that really, uh, you know, I just like think about all the time. Uh, bands, uh, we had Audio Adrenaline, uh, which made like Christian grungy kind okay. of music. Um, uh, and then Weird Al had a huge impact on me because you know some of the songs like i just did i just wasn't exposed to the originals so all i right. got were the parodies i was like man these songs are great so like uh you know i think uh that well hold like, on i got a weird owl story yeah so call it 13 14 months sure. ago so pre-covid uh during the grammys danny harrison george yeah. harrison's son throws a party every year called the whammies and what he does is he calls all his friends together and they pick a band yeah. and they just sing covers of that band all night long. <laughs> and so Jewel, yeah. who I'm friends with, uh, said, hey, you want to be my plus one to this thing? It's kind of cool. I'm going to get up and sing. So I'm like, you know me. Yeah. Hell yeah, that sounds yeah. great. So I go to this and, you know, the the level of uh, folks singing there are kind of like Richard Marks. Perry Farrell, Jane's Addiction, Lisa Loeb was there, yeah. uh, Butch Walker mm-hmm. uh, was there, Stacy Stacy Glenn Jones, who actually grew up out here in Sugarland. Really, he's the touring drummer for Matchbox Twenty, I've, I've and heard of yeah. he's been on. Uh, he was the drummer and lead singer for Letters to Cleo. He was in Veruca Salt, mm-hmm. um, and anyway, so he was part of the house band playing all these things. So anyway, I go to that, right? I got to meet Drew Carey. Yeah. But anyway, so it literally musically was horrible because you have the most talented artists in the world up there singing, but at the same time, they haven't rehearsed anything. Yeah, I mean, sure. they're just up there. But So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. The one person yeah. that got up and crushed it, yeah. Weird Al. Because they, they were yeah. doing the Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. And um, he got up and sang I Won't Fall Down yeah. by Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, what's the Beatles song, Truffle? Uh, anyway, yeah. he gets up there. He sings those two songs, plays it straight. Yeah. So it's not a parody. He plays it straight. He crushed it. Yeah. All of those artists yeah. come out of the green room and are side stage watching yeah. Weird Al. And so anyway, it's amazing and all. So later on, I bump into him I'm like, hey, Weird Al. I hate to say this, dude, but like I don't think my crush on man crush on you could be any bigger, but it really is. And he goes, "Hug it out." And I, was, 
<laughs> I said, sure. So I've, I've hugged it out with Weird Al. Dude, so I'm is, with you. That is epic. So, like, but I think, you know. Well, name the, name the only artist yeah. to have a top 40 hit in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Yeah. Weird yeah. Al, Madonna. Yeah. Wouldn't have thought Madonna is doing that, but yeah. I guess so, yeah. Dude, Like a Virgin was a long time ago. That is... You got a whole decade. That's amazing. One song in the top forty, you know. <laughs> so like, but yeah, no Weird Al and, uh, and Madonna. So I think um, you know I, I learned this growing up taking piano lessons. Like uh, there's, I'm an entrepreneur, so I really like to tweak things a lot. Uh, right. And so parody naturally appeals to me because I really like to change whatever's out there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my piano teacher, when I was a little kid, was like, you know, make sure you learn the song first, like play it master the song and then you can do whatever you want with it because oh, until advice. until you go through that process you don't actually you, you think you have a handle on what you're going to do with it but you really don't right and i found that like as uh, as far as music goes like that one piece of advice um i think has has been unusually applicative to a lot of different types of scenarios um but I think you, Weird Al, obviously, he's got he's got something intrinsically figured out that is more than uh, that is more more uh, complicated and uh, you know thoughtful than meets the eye. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's right. So, so a lot of religious music. Yep. And is it all kind of modern Christian rock stuff? Because I think Amazing Grace might be the best song ever written. Uh, uh, for sure. Like musically, you've got that one in like How Great Thou Art. Um, yeah. Uh, and you've got all that class of, of music. And then uh, then like really you have like the early worship music transition. So like Skillet, Audio Adrenaline, all these guys, Sonic Flood, like released all of this worship music when uh, they were trying to copy um, – secular music in that you come up with a song you write it about maybe it's about jesus whatever yeah uh but then they went to like well church is really about reflecting and and back to god the glory that we understand or think of him in and the songs that are born out of that can come from great suffering uh you know amazing grace like you know the slave trader uh who comes to jesus literally and says you know i've been doing this terrible thing um, but your grace is sufficient like that, that will preach. Yeah. You know, uh, how great thou art. You've got, um, uh, uh, and then it is well with my soul. The guy that wrote it as well with my soul literally lost his wife and daughters in a shipwreck. And he's dealing with that loss and that pain and he sings and he comes up with this like deeply connecting song. It is well with my soul. And it is, it comes, I think worship comes out when it's done well, it comes out of a human expression and really uh, tries to capture something that is fleeting. And so you, you can you can lock it in on these songs and these lyrics, uh, and it's beautiful. So you have that. Uh, Christian started uh, Christian band started making worship music, and, I, and so all of those guys are, are, are super uh, awesome, and even into, like, modern, modern, like, Bethel and some of those guys that really have done some cool things with, with, with um, their their stuff. So you've got all that side. So, got, so mm-hmm. of Christianity... Yeah. Episcopal, Methodist, Catholic, uh, non-denominational. So oh, I grew okay. up. Uh, I grew up in a couple of different churches. Uh, grandfather was a Baptist circuit preacher. So right. like a lot, 
a lot you, of stuff. How do you keep the Baptists from drinking your beer on a fishing trip? You bring a second Baptist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, how do you um, uh, how do you count Episcopals? How? For every group of four, there's a fifth. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so I we like got that. we got you know. Uh, um, uh, there's a lot you can it's easy to make fun of Christians because we do have stereotypes and we embrace them yeah no there's no, there's no doubt I <laughs> so I, I go to an Episcopal church yeah. uh, my priest Patrick but I always tell him I'm a Methodist yeah I just happen to come to the Episcopal church yeah you know? that's fine because I like you Patrick yeah. but yeah <laughs> no there's uh, I think there, there's a lot of you know a lot a lot of stuff in, on the church side you have Weird Al which is like my bridge because uh, growing up in Christian subculture like you 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 were didn't really interact a lot of times especially homeschool christian subculture like you didn't interact right. with the real world so weird al is like your safe link between the two so yep. it carries a lot of weight for me but then like on like the songs that i really like intuitively grew up and really uh, identified strongly with you have back in black oh yeah uh and uh you have like um i mean how old were you when you heard back in black i mean i was in high school so back in black came out a long time ago. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You didn't but hear it like, fresh. But no, you, no, yeah, no, okay, no, I like, got you. I was sick, like, man. This is great music. You, you have like the Beatles. You have yeah, like yeah. yesterday and, and, and hey Jude, um, uh, and uh, you know, let it be. Just like good, solid, you know, relatable music. Uh, I I think um, even into some of the. Uh, some of the things I, I find myself listening to now, like jazz, like Dave Brubeck, you have take five, just a classic beat. Anywhere you hear it, you can get into it. Um, uh, Basa Me Mucho has like some really interesting, like, like sing songy moments just in my own personal life. Like just. Yeah. No, love that's, music. yeah. no, that's really cool. The it's, it, it's been interesting talking to people about their playlists. Cause one, it does say a lot, and the other two, the other thing that I think you figure out about music is you were talking about Weird Al being the bridge between religion and, and maybe the rest of the world. Yeah. Music's ultimately the glue that kind of holds us all together. Yeah, yeah it really I mean, is. it really does, because, you know, you can sit around at a, uh, at a Foo Fighters show, and there's a guy in a suit next to you, and, yeah. you know, there's a guy tattooed up and all, yeah. and everybody's beaten. Yeah. My, my first... Uh, uh, like theological conversation like I can remember had to do with music really what yes. was it so um we, were, we had some friends they were devout catholics like went to confession every day like big you know large family obviously right. and, and did the whole nine yards and I was talking with the one of the older sons about music and I was like well you listen to the Beatles like you know but you also do this kind of stuff like what's the what's the difference um and he's like you know you don't make Christian music by just putting the word Jesus on things. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, middle school brain, like, what does that mean? How do I rationalize this? What is, and like, like with anything that sticks with you, you kind of go back to it as you age and as you develop and you rethink about those words that just kind of sit there and you're like, Oh man, that's just, that actually unpacks as I've aged and, and it help helps me understand things. You know, the so I go to St. Mark's in Houston, Episcopal Church. Yeah, the great church, by the way. Oh, it's awesome. Um, daughter goes to school there. Um, the 
five o'clock service is incredibly casual. You can show up in shorts and t-shirt and the band is in a, in effect, a quartet and it's a jazz band and they sing, let it be periodically. <laughs> they sing, you know, they'll sing a Dylan song and, and all yeah. that. And Coldplay's got some great ones too. Oh, we, you know, uh, Cameron hadn't played Coldplay, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, you know, just because it doesn't say Jesus doesn't mean it's not talking to the oh, human yeah. experience. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And Patrick's big point is as much as he would love to run around and say, you go to hell unless you believe in me. Uh, his point about religion and Christianity that he feels like his job is, I just need to convince you that there's a community of forgiveness. Sure. Forgiveness of others, forgiveness of yourself. Yeah. You know, Amazing grace. Yeah. Yeah. If I can do that, then I've done my job as your yeah. priest. I, I fully endorse that. Dude, Mark, cool of you to come on the podcast. Well, I really appreciate it. Uh, it's uh, uh, definitely was a Chuck Yates fanboy when I was getting into the industry and even while, you know, while through it. So it's, uh, it's, oh, it's I got an goosebumps. honor for me to do that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we need to hug it out. Wow. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hug it out with Weird. Weird Al. So real quick. Plug your podcast. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Risk Profile, it's profiling the journeys of an entrepreneur, um, not really focusing on, on on me, but like drawing the common thread. All entrepreneurship involves taking a risk, uh, really pretty much universally not seeing the full risk that you're taking when you jump into it. But once you leap, you really can't like go back. Um, and so uh, telling the story, it's okay to fail. It's okay to uh, screw up. It's okay to win. Uh, and when you're, when you're, whatever you're doing, you're doing it in the context of other people and, and trying to highlight those stories and encourage people to follow that road. We're both on digital wildcatters. Absolutely. And yeah. when do yours drop? Uh, Tuesdays. Uh, Tuesdays. And we uh, have a season a quarter, so we have some gaps in between there, but we've got uh, Chris Shepard on the podcast. We got David Weekly, uh, uh, season three coming up. Uh, we've got, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people, all kinds of, you know, software entrepreneurs, uh, obviously restaurateurs, we've got uh, media, we've got travel, we've got like, you know, you name it, if you're an entrepreneur, like we're, we're hoping to have a prominent businessman, prominent Chuck businessman. Yates. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, so you drop in, are you dropping? So I'm going to drop this next Wednesday. Sure. So will I have been dropped the Tuesday before? Or do no, you know? no, you, uh, you are coming in third season. So we're like, what is this? April. So next quarter starts whenever, and then we'll, we'll do that. So it'll so be a look weeks. forward to the yeah, summer. Look forward to things that have already been recorded. Let's do that. There we go. Yeah. Dude, thank you so much Dude, for coming this on. This is awesome. Yeah!